0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry, and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure.
1: Don't expect an epiphanic moment. You know, enjoy the journey of learning what you're good at and what suits you.
0: Today, I'm talking to Maggie Brown, who works with EDF UK at Hinkley Point C. She's led the innovation program and she now leads supplier relationship management, which includes innovation in the supply chain. Maggie lives in Bristol with her husband, Sam, and two-year-old daughter, Maya, and in her spare time and when allowed to, out of lockdown, enjoys traveling, but in lockdown enjoys cooking and eating. Um, Thank you, Maggie, for joining me. It's lovely to see you.
1: My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you for having me.
0: Maggie, you grew up in Ottawa in Canada. So tell us what that was like. What was the young Maggie like at school?
1: Well, I mean, Ottawa, Canada was cold, <laughs> as as you can imagine. Um, but I suppose young Maggie was very artistic. So I wanted from a young age to be an actress, I went to a drama audition only high school, um, and was very, you know, very interested in, in the arts. Um, I took singing lessons and piano lessons. And Uh, I suppose I I dabbled in in sport as well but I really was not at all um, interested in science and math which is a bit ironic given the industry I've ended up in.
0: So at school I mean when you were sort of in secondary school and you were thinking about your future what were the sort of thoughts you had did you want to be on the stage was that it Or, or how did your thought processes go?
1: i mean so it was a really interesting journey for me because i had in my mind before i went to this audition only specialist secondary school where i was focused on uh, theater and training for theater i had in my mind that i was going to be this famous actress right i mean it you know it seems like a completely unrealistic goal and i'm sure part of me appreciated it even then um but what happened over the period of of study in secondary school is that I, I just realized I didn't love it enough to make the sacrifices necessary to even make a living as an actress, if that makes sense. So, you know, and uh, there are people I went to school with who 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 did and who continued and, and are now, you know, appearing in television programs and, um, you know, and are on stage and, I well, nobody's on stage now, but. You know what I mean? And I just, uh, I just, yeah, I came out of that experience towards the back end of secondary school thinking, I don't love this enough to continue to pursue it. The only reason it was hard was because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. It wasn't hard letting go of my original dream. That sounds really terrible, but it it just, it, it, became less of a dream over over the journey so so I suppose towards the the back end of secondary school I was quite happy in in my decision not to continue to pursue acting but I didn't know what else I wanted and that was what you know that was that was harder
0: so how did you then um sort of move your mind from that world into what you then did at Concordia University, which was political science.
1: So there's a lot of pressure put on kids, really, to to decide what they want to do and to pick, you know, a specialism really early. I I don't know if it works the same way here, but in Canada, you have to declare your major um, at point of application, so, so you have to basically pick what route you want to go down at, when you're applying for a university. And I, I honestly, I picked poli sci out of a hat. It seemed like on, on a list of looking at a list of potential degrees that I could take. And, all, you know, I was I, I had to do arts and humanities, really, because I hadn't done the, the sort of level of senior sciences and maths that would have been required to, to go into you know, a, 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 you know, a, a non-arts and, and humanities degree. So picked poli-sci because it seemed interesting. Like I was interested in, in the world. I was interested in the way that, um, you know, different, different countries set up their political systems and how that impacted their interactions with each other. And I just thought, you know, that seems like something I'd like to know more about which is a terrible way to pick your degree like you know it's an expensive commitment
0: but it's good that you were interested in in pursuing something and finding out more and and I guess perhaps you know once you've got to university there are other options because you know you hear of people changing courses and all sorts of things but you you found that you were interested in it
1: yeah I was and I you know again I do think that there's a lot of pressure at least from my parents there was a lot of pressure to get a degree right because once you have a degree you can leverage that degree for any number of different opportunities potentially so you know i i, I stuck i stuck with it i thought i thought it was interesting enough to see me through an undergrad um, and i had in particular i had one amazing teacher that really brought to life political philosophy so he he was actually he was british and um i i had kind of uh, i knew well i had known i'd wanted to travel more more widely like i would have happily traveled before my university degree but that was a no-no um from my parents perspective so i had to get through my degree in order to then do some world travel and so so you know there was something interesting about the fact that he came from a different culture and had a slightly different perspective. But, you know, I remember studying Dante's Inferno and this was, this class was at nine o'clock in the morning. It was three, a three hour class on a Thursday, I think, which is not easy to get to as an undergraduate student. Um, and I just, you know, I remember actually being excited to go and listen to this man talk about and bring to bring to life Dante's Inferno at nine o'clock in the morning. And it just stuck with me, I suppose. And, it, um, you know, I think I, I I ended up graduating with a, you know, a fairly good grades across the board. And I think I probably did the best in that course because it was just such a you know, it was you could tell he loved what he was teaching and he really brought it to life. And I think that's that's a that's such an important and overlooked um, part of education. Right. It, you know, it's about how good a teacher you have in a certain subject.
0: How do you think you changed during your university years? Because it's quite a formative time, isn't it?
1: I was living away from um, from ottawa so i i moved to a bigger city in montreal and was living on my own um and i actually montreal doesn't have halls really so so you you live in an apartment and you're managing all of your own finances and it, it's quite a good um i suppose in introduction to adulthood
0: <laughs> it's a step in that direction isn't it
1: yeah yeah so i mean i grew up I grew up quite a lot. Um, I, I think I've always trusted my gut instincts, and I, you know, I'm someone who pursues pursues opportunities because of what what I like. I suppose, I, you know, I'm very very led by. Does this speak to me, and am I interested in it? And I think university probably re- helped me to reinforce the idea of going going with my gut and kind of pursuing areas that that were interesting to me um, but I, I also I guess I came out of it feeling like um, I would just be inspired at some point by something and that would then lead me in a in the direction for my career and it didn't actually happen that way there was a lot of trial and error along the way which you know I'm sure I'm sure we'll we'll get into but
0: let's get into your traveling because you you got your degree your BA and now you could fulfill that sort of travel bug that you'd had in you so tell us where you went and what you did for the next Year or so.
1: So I guess I'd always wanted to travel and I fast tracked my degree. I did it in three years instead of four. Um, most undergrad degrees are four and Ken. I don't know if it's it's the same here, isn't it? Three here. Yeah. So I'd fast tracked my my degree and I just knew I'd I always had wanted to travel. Um and Australia had been at the top of my list when I was sailing. Um as a as a younger well sort of during during my um my teen years so i started in australia and then i traveled through most of southeast asia and i also visited china and i had kind of various different friends and my you know my sister was with me for some of it and so it was quite a it was i I traveled by my by myself for quite a while as well um and then I came back to, to Canada for a little bit. And I suppose traveling was amazing because more and more formative in a lot of ways than um, than university was. Because you just have, you know, you have no options but to completely figure out who you are and be yourself. you you know you really come into your own I think and I guess I would recommend well now I, I know that there are constraints because of lockdown but I would really recommend a stint of traveling to to anyone who you know isn't quite sure about what's next um so I loved it I loved it I had an amazing amazing time um and, you know, there was, there was a, <laughs> I guess the, the frustration again was that I, I, I suppose I had thought that during my travels, I would have this epiphany, you know, I'd have a, a moment where I was just direct, you know, directed towards my ultimate career path. And it would occur to me um, that I, that, you know, I then have this clear direction to follow. And again, it didn't really happen in that way. Like I met amazing people. I learned a huge amount, but I didn't come out of it any clearer um, about my my next steps. And what I ended up doing after my year of my initial year of traveling is I came home and, you know, I... uh, I probably ended up a little bit depressed because I I hadn't had this epiphanic moment. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I had many odd jobs. I was a professional picture framer for a bit and I worked in in retail for small startups and um, nothing. I just couldn't find the thing that really suited me. And I hadn't had enough of traveling. Um, So I ended up going away again. And that in that second time, uh, I was in Mexi- Mexico and Central America, and um, I suppose that was a really interesting stint for me because I was completely on my 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 own, um, and I think I came out of that experience knowing that what I probably needed to do was study a little bit more and, and also be less hard on myself because, you know, you aren't necessarily going to find the perfect job, right? It's just not, it doesn't happen to many people in that way. I have, you know, I have, I have one friend I can think of that decided she wanted to be a lawyer when she was, you know 10 years old and then actually became a lawyer every every single other person that i know has had kind of a non-linear career path and has had to try things realize that they don't work and then try something else and realize that that doesn't work and then try something else and i think the best thing you can do is put less pressure on yourself early and try you know keep trying things until you find the thing that fits
0: yeah i I think it's great advice that because we don't we don't have an epiphany but the the journey that we go through is part of the story right and that's how we can explore you know what we might do what we might not do and discover you know it's a journey of discovery about who we are isn't it and and what fits in terms of what we do so you, you then started to build up some experience around innovation. You went to Crossrail and you coordinated uh, innovation and then uh, led that program. And then that, I guess, led to the next step, which was to move to EDF and Hinkley Point C as the innovation manager. So just talk me through that little journey, because you're now you hadn't had experience directly of innovation, I'm guessing, but and yet you came into that role in Crossrail. So how did that happen? So
1: I guess just going back um, to, to my interest, which was sort of an organizational strategy specifically focused on, I suppose, sustainability, one of the things that I realized was that most of the, most, most of the organizations I was working with, um, the sustainability teams ended up focused on environmental compliance issues so it was primarily about like how how do we ensure that we as an organization you know meet meet the requirements of various different i suppose governing bodies and then demonstrate to the industry in order to maintain our license conditions um, and really what they weren't able to to do was make any dramatic changes to the organization which would really drive it to be more sustainable. And and I suppose I re, you know, I realized I think I was working with oh gosh, China. It was an FMCG company and and they had a they had an innovation team and i realized that there was this relationship this lovely relationship between the sustainability team within the organization and the innovation team where the innovation team was filling the gap in allowing so that the sustainability team were the experts and the, the they were kind of providing the ideas and then the innovation team was there to to really help execute those ideas to deliver change on on behalf of the you know the wider organization. I thought that link was really interesting, so I started to kind of explore this a little bit more. And in in the construction industry, innovation didn't really exist. It wasn't formalized as something that like major projects were looking at. So it was really in its infancy. And the Crossrail program was the first of a kind for. For the the construction industry in the UK, and I met the team, the innovation team, and just started to talk to them about how you know how I how interesting I found this area, I guess. And and I've been working with, I suppose during my um, consultancy, independent consultancy, I've been working with small SMEs a little bit as well to help them, you know, write business propositions and and it all sort of came together, all of the little bits of my experience, my interests came together and I, I ended up leveraging a job interview um, for, the, for the Crossrail position. And actually it fell into place for me, um, my elements of different experiences I'd had all fell into place in this role and I really, really enjoyed it. And um, I suppose, you know, because it was a first of, first of a kind for, for the construction industry, I did a really interesting piece of work at the end of Crossrail, um, or at the end of the, the innovation program um, for Crossrail, where I helped set up an industry-wide um, innovation membership organization, which is now still running. It's called I- I3P, so the Infrastructure Industry Innovation Platform. Um, And and it was just, you know, it was just this amazing experience because, you know, it it was about bringing tons of different organizations together to define their strategic priorities for the really driving exciting change in the construction industry Um, and looking at, like, how you, you know, how do you even structure that sort of an organization like how how do you what what governance do you need to put to allow for decisions to be made when there's 30 members it's anyways so that was really exciting and then i i um again it, it for me it's always been about connections and and you know capability rather than experience um but i came i suppose off of that that experience um with a with a bigger profile in the industry and great connections. Um, and I was headhunted for the role role at Hinkley to set up an innovation pro- program there. So, and that's that's sort of where, where I, well, I mean, I've been in various different roles since, but I'm still with Hinkley Point C because EDF UK kind of has a way of sucking you in, I think,
0: <laughs> in, a, in a good way, in a good way. So I just want to ask you about um, the difference between your experience in the construction industry with Crossrail and working with, you know, all of those partners in innovation, which I, I guess was, how do we do things differently? Essentially, that's to me what innovation is, whether it's technical, whether it's structural, whether it's financing, you know, whatever. And then moving into Nuclear, albeit a a large construction project, but the nuclear industry is not really that well known for innovating. You know, the nuclear industry tends to be um, almost constrained by the way it's always done things. So I'm just interested in your experience on a new build project, whether you found that to be the case and different from your time in Crossrail, or whether you felt and saw an appetite that was big enough. To make some of those changes,
1: yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, there is definitely an appetite to make changes in the in in the nuclear industry, um, but you're right to say that you know there are a, a different set of constraints. Um, and I, you know, my observation on Hinckley would be that we almost came in too late. So I joined the project. In 2016, after after we got fed, and even at that stage, the design has been had been set pretty much, you know. And you want to minimize changes to design once once you've had your final investment decision, really, because it's it's then about cracking on and and building it. Um, that said, there is a lot of opportunity, and there always has been a lot of opportunity. To innovate in how we build what we build, rather than what we build, um, and although you know this this the structure the structured approach to innovation um, and this sort of the program that Crossrail developed is not and hasn't been directly transferred to to HPC because the organization is a really different organization with different ambitions um, and different requirements really there's a huge amount of innovation that isn't recognized going on on the project on on a regular basis Um, you know especially when you start to look at the the kind of collaboration on the ground that the contractors have um, and what they come come together to achieve and in terms of maybe what you would think is small gains and continuous improvement, but actually amount to significant impacts on cost and time um, for, for HPC. So, you know, there's, there's some, and there's, there's exciting uses of new technology that, that we probably don't publicize enough. Um, and So, you know, virtual reality, um, is being used pretty pretty extensively at the minute on HPC to to look at um, inspections to do you know we're doing virtual inspections because of the constraints of COVID for example and um, you know actually speaking of COVID there's there's really exciting innovation that's going on on site at the minute to allow us to manage you know manage safely during this quite difficult period Um, so we still have you know we still have 5,000 people on site and that's because of the you know the the kind of amazing um, and and quite innovative processes that we've got in place and huge innovations in in terms of ways of working as well. So I mean this is not just just HPC but one of my interests at the minute um, so I'm I'm the chair of the the Working Parents Network, and we've always had flexible working at the top of the agenda. And if you think about what COVID's done for flexible working, it's completely changed the status quo, hasn't it? Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it will never go back to working five days a week in office, will we? I think it's gonna really Play to the strengths of the next generation coming coming through because they're they're so like you know I'm I was born in 84 so I'm uh, the of the first generation with the internet um, and so I'm reasonably comfortable with technology but you compare that to you know that to the teen teenagers now and that you know that they have a lot of innate we talked a lot about skills and capability, right? I think there's a lot of innate or um, knowledge and, and skill set and capability. There's a lot of innate skills and capabilities associated with the the kind of generation that are looking looking at stepping into their first careers now, just by nature of the, the technology shifts that have happened in the last decade um, that will put them in a much stronger position to be entering, you know, a remote workforce, then I certainly am.
0: <laughs> so I'm gonna take you back to when you are in the younger generation at school, um, thinking about what am I gonna do? You know, I know that, you know, life on the stage isn't for me. I'm gonna go to this university and do this. What would be your advice to the younger Maggie?
1: I think probably two things. One, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> don't feel like you need to have it all figured out. Um, and the sec- the second is, you know, don't expect an epiphanic moment. You know, enjoy the journey of learning what you're good at and what suits you and trust that it will eventually lead you to something that is fulfilling from a career perspective
0: it's a lovely lesson that isn't it because you find yourself gradually gradually in a role that fits you and a role that you can make a big difference in a way that other people can't and that's that's the sort of that's where we all want to get to where we where we actually flourish because we're we're motivated and passionate about what we're doing, but it also plays to us who we are as people and and what we're good at. Fantastic. Maggie, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. It's been lovely to chat to you.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Sorry if I've waffled a little bit.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.